Last week, um, we started talking about God as Father and how that affects us and how that ties into almost every area of our life. I'd say if you read, especially the book of John, but if you read the Gospels and see how Jesus gets his strength, his confidence, his authority, he speaks more of the Father than anything else. He speaks more of the Father than even his own uh, rights and authority. Everything he says, everything I have comes from him. Everything I say, I say because he said it. Everything I do because I saw him do it. His relationship with his Father defined him to find his place, and he revealed the Father to us in a way that we didn't know before. And I know, like, if you weren't here last week, and I might repeat myself a few times this week, but I'd encourage you to go back, if you're part of this church, go back and, and, and listen to the podcast from last week, because uh, I think it'll hopefully fill in a lot of gaps for us. We sometimes wish, I know I've met plenty of people who wish that we could somehow use a different word for God than Father because their experience with Father, with their Father, or with their lack of a Father was not good. So I'd rather not use that word talking about God. But there's a reason, and like we talked about last week, there's a reason God picked that word, picked that title. He could have picked a word that had nothing to do with any humans in your life that was just for him, that, that only belonged to him. And in fact, there are words that we talk about God that only belong to him. But he chose the word father, not despite the fact that it had all this baggage, but because of the fact. In many ways, when we embrace him as father, there are strings and, and, and pathways in our own, deep in our own hearts and souls that are so deeply affected by that word, by that term, by that relationship, father and mother in our lives, that when we embrace him as father, it's not like we have to shove those things aside. It's, in fact, what he does when we embrace him as father, we, we, we understand who he is, that he is a good father, that he's not like the fathers we've had here. Even if you had a fairly good one, Jesus compared, he said, your, your dad, if you, you fathers in the crowd, if... If your son asked you for bread, you wouldn't give him a stone. If he asked you for fish, you wouldn't give him a snake. Then he said, you being wicked fathers, evil fathers, don't you know that we have a righteous father in heaven who is better than we are? So, I mean, I I can imagine being in the crowd and saying, hang on, I'm not evil. I'm not wicked. I'm a pretty good dad. I mean, I don't know why you don't even know me. But what he's saying is compared to him, we're all flawed, but he's perfect. And his perfection is shown in his goodness. And so when we embrace him as father, it's not that it kind of shoves away all these other, this baggage that we have attached to the word father. In fact, what happens is when we start to understand him as father, it straightens all these other things out. It begins to heal these deep places. It begins to uh, straighten out the crooked places. It begins to pull out things we tried to shove aside a long time ago and heal them. God's not, you know, some psychotherapist that just wants you to get in the fetal position and talk about your daddy issues. But he is the healer. And the truth is there's some things that can never be healed until they're brought out, until they're brought into the open. I love the scripture that says we are laid open before him with whom we have to do. There's no secret from his eyes. There's nothing you'd want to hide from him. And we're going to continue to dive into the idea of God as our Father as we continue the next few weeks talking about family as defined by the Scripture. Family is defined by God because we're a reflection of Him. Even marriage is a reflection of Christ in the church. And so if we want to understand these things, the best thing to do is look at the image. Look at the perfect image of what a dad looks like. Look at the perfect image of what a marriage looks like. Look at the perfect image of what childhood looks like. And in the book of Hebrews, there's this interesting section, which doesn't always sound fun, because it's talking about discipline. And even when we say the word discipline, people react a certain way. Some people react coolly to it. Some people react kind of, they flinch a little bit, they draw back. And it's because, once again, this is a word with a ton of baggage for us. This is a word that we, we hear and we go, oh, I don't know if I like that, or I don't know if I want to relate that to God. It's, it's without doubt that, that many of us, if you, if you fear rejection, if you fear that you don't really belong, 
any correction or discipline is seen as rejection. And when that happens, you draw away from it. You back up from it. But when you know that you are beloved of God, when you know that you are accepted in the beloved, when you know that you are embraced by God, that you are his child, that you are righteous by faith, when you know this stuff, discipline's not a bad word. It's not a word that causes you to draw back. It's a word that causes you to draw near. Man, we really, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but you really need to look at the Israelites and how God, through every single, those, those 10 times of testing, how he brought them through, and, and through every one of those times where they had to learn to trust him for water, they had to learn to trust him uh, to, to, to provide for them, they had to learn to trust him to give them shade and to trust him for protection, all of these things. In all of these times, he is teaching them to let go of the idea they had as slaves and pick up the idea that they are the people and the children of God. And it was the one thing they just tripped over over and over again. Like we said last week, when they came to the promised land, what does the book of Hebrews says? It says they did not go in because of unbelief. The question is, what didn't they believe? Where was their unbelief founded? Certainly they said, they went in and said, well, they're too big, we're too small. We're like grasshoppers in, in our own sight, so we must be in theirs. But I think in order for you to find the heart of their unbelief, you have to look at a few things. Look at Joshua and Caleb, who are the two guys that had it right. What did they say? If God is with us, we have nothing to fear. If God is with us, he'll give us the land. If God is with us, those giants you're afraid of will be our prey. And it says in Deuteronomy 1, as Moses speaking from God confronts them about their unbelief. He says, you said in your tents, because you said in your tents, the Lord hates us. And because he hates us, he brought us here to die. Every single time, almost every single time, when they confronted a, a, an impossible situation, they said this, something along the lines of God, were there not enough graves in Egypt? God, couldn't you have killed us there? Why'd you bring us out here to die? Why do you hate us? Why have you abandoned us? They build a golden calf. Why? Because God doesn't seem to be around. So we'll build something we can see, we can touch, we can control. Because what you, if you fear God, and I'm not talking about the good fear of God, I'm talking about the bad fear, like you're scared of him. You, you have, a, you, there, there's this fear that pushes you away from God. When there's that fear there, what do we do when we're afraid? We look for something we can control. I want to control something. I want something I can have control over, whether it's myself or something else. So the Israelites look for a God they can control because they're freaked out by the God they can't. So they build a calf. And instead of saying, we're not abandoned, we belong to him. He called us his firstborn. Doesn't that mean something? They still viewed him like they viewed their Egyptian masters. Did you ever notice the way they treat the Egyptians? By the time that Moses comes to them, they're miserable. The scripture says that they've been so cruelly treated that even when Moses came and gave them a message of deliverance, they could not hear it because of their despondency, because of their lowness and shortness of spirit, because of the cruel beatings and treatment of the Egyptians. So they hate the Egyptians. And yet, what do they say over and over again? Wish we could go back. They have Stockholm Syndrome. They're so, they, this is how they are as slaves. They, they resent their masters. They, they don't like them. They fear them. And they feel that they need them. And unfortunately, that's a lot of people's views on God. This is why so often in the New Testament, God says, I don't want you to think as slaves anymore, but as sons and daughters. You see, People who view themselves and, and view that God views them as a slave, they'll do things for God, but they won't do them for the same reason you might think. They'll do things for God, and some of those things might even turn out well. But they'll shy away when things get rough. They'll run away when correction or discipline comes, or the things that they, they'll, they'll never feel that they're doing enough to earn God's favor, earn God's pleasure. I'm greatly, you know, I, I really find it a good thing that every writer of the epistles of the New Testament, every single one of them at some point says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. 
Greek word doulos, slave. And yet, God never calls them that. They say, I have made myself a bondservant to Christ. That was, that's not their identity. Their identity is a son or a daughter of the king. But they say, I have submitted my life as a bondservant to Christ. That is a completely different attitude than someone who has an attitude of a slave. This is a person who says, I know I have rights as a child of God. I know God will never treat me like a slave. He treats me like his child. And yet I've laid down my life for him. That's a good attitude. But there's a wrong attitude that the scripture brings up over and over again. And it's the attitude that kept them out of the promised land. Because ultimately it's the attitude that says God's using us for what he wants. God God might like us at times. He might hate us at other times. But ultimately he doesn't care whether we live or die. It's an attitude that the minute you feel a slight bit of correction or discipline, you draw back. And I want us to completely let God heal that place in our hearts. We've, I've, I've encountered many people, and I'm sure you have too. Maybe you've been one of these people that are just joyful, serving the Lord, happy to help. They love people. But the minute you might say, hey, I, you should probably do this different, mm-hmm. you don't see them for a while. Mm-hmm. Because there's something in them. There's a fear of abandonment, rejection. There's that, that, that sense of, I'm not really in good with you. And so I'm only, we're only as tight as my next, I mean, we're only, we're only as good as, as, as my next uh, thing that I do for you. And the minute I mess up, our relationship is broken. How many of us feel that way? I don't want you to raise your hand, but how many of us in some way feel that way about God? Like we're teetering on the edge of he likes me, he likes me not. He likes me, he likes me not. I told you about the Bible study we had in Loon Lake when we looked around this a few weeks ago and we were reading in the Psalms where it says, because he delights in me, he'll do this. And we said, well, how could David have the guts to say God delights in me? And look at all the things that David did in his life. I mean, he said that pretty early on in his life, but he still had that attitude later on when he'd done some pretty terrible things. So he said, everybody in the room, if you believe God loves you, raise your hand. Every hand went up because Jesus loves me. This I know. We know this. Then we said... How many of you believe God likes you? The hands go down. That's a bit broken, isn't it? I hope my son never really questions whether I like him or not. And I've come to realize, because I told you this, but I used to say all the time, we used to, I used to have this idea that we, we have to love everybody, we just don't have to like everybody, right? And so I have to love this person, I don't have to like you. But I found when you let God work on your heart and you love people with the love of Jesus, as hard as you resist, you start to like them. And you don't want, you may not want to, but if you love them, he, he puts something in you where you don't say, I, I love you, but I dislike you. It, those things, you begin to like them. You begin to enjoy certain things about them. Why? Because the love of God is changing you and it's probably changing them too. So... I want you to turn to Hebrews if you're not already there. And we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 is, is, is carrying on what has been laid out in Hebrews 10 and 11. This is the idea of endurance, the idea of pressing on towards the goal, pressing on, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is seated at the right hand of God. There's this idea of not giving up even though things got a little hard. And he says that we should, in Hebrews 12, chapter, chapter 12, verse 3, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Then it says this, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Now maybe your idea there is somebody else causing you to bleed. Maybe the picture in your mind is Jesus himself sweating drops of blood as he took on the sins of the world. But either way, he's saying, guys, it's not as bad as you think it is. You, you may think things are hard, but let me tell you, you haven't resisted to this point yet. But then he says this, and I think this is where it's gonna, we're going to get heart from it. 
He says, you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. So whether you're male or female here this morning, embrace this as yours. He has given this as sons and daughters. And of course, in this day and age, sons had different rights. He says, whether you're male or female, you all have the same rights in Christ. So this is how he addresses you. Not as his, merely as his servants, not merely as those that attend his church, but as his children, as his rightful heirs. He says this, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which we've all become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. That's an interesting thought. I mean, I, I would think everybody in the room would say, I'm a legitimate child of God. So he's saying, that's why he's able to say to them, he doesn't say some of you are disciplined and some of you aren't. He says, if you can't receive this discipline of which we've all partaken, every single child of God, God is raising you up as a disciple. The word discipline becomes a lot less scary when you look at the root word, disciple. You want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? Now, how did Jesus treat his disciples? They just torture them for fun. They smack them around often. They break their legs every now and then just because they deserved it. No. Was he hard on them at times? I'd say get behind me, Satan, is not something I want to hear all the time. There are a couple times he sighs deeply in his spirit and he says, wonderful, you know, sweet nothings like, how long do I have to deal with you guys? Which you don't put in a Valentine's Day card. Just a tip for the next couple of weeks. You don't put that in a Valentine's Day card. So maybe that might not always felt nice. But why did he say it? Here's the question. Did Jesus say it because he had to get it off his chest? Because he's just so angry, he got to let it out. No, Jesus never lost control. He never sinned. For him to lose control, lose his temper, would be to step out of faith into sin, right? So he didn't do that. So any time he was a little rough with them or corrected them or trained them in a certain way that didn't always feel nice, why doesn't it always feel nice? Because your flesh wants what your flesh wants. And God wants what he wants for you, which is the best for you. And so if left alone, you will do what you feel like. That will lead to a bad place, but it'll feel good for a bit. If you're loved by the Father, he won't let you continue down the path of just what feels nice. Instead, and thank God, nothing feels better than his presence, his love, his embrace. Nothing feels better. But we're being detoxed from what the world taught us we needed. We're being brought back to who he created us to be. And there are times where that rubs against what you think you want. I mean, if you, if you have developed... a I mean, I've met kids that the only thing they'll eat are like cheesies and chicken fingers. Well, they're not going to grow up very healthy like that, are they? There's going to be an issue at some point in their life. And so it may not feel nice, but at some point the parents say, you have to eat something else or, you know, you're going to get scurvy. I don't know. You're not going to do well. You need something else. So when God corrects us, it's not that he's just so ticked off he's got to get it out. Because he is in control. Anytime you're disciplined by the Lord, it is out of his great love and delight in you. So thinking of Jesus, keeping our eyes on Jesus, takes a bit of the sting out of that. And look what he says. I want you to see this again. Don't faint when you are reproved by him. What does that mean to faint? For you, like, what does that mean? Literally, because, I mean, I don't think anybody here says, oh, mercy, and falls down. I don't think that's really what happens with you. So what does faint mean in the scriptures? It means to quit, to give up. You know, we quit. We quit because we don't like that. 
We quit because we didn't think it would be hard. I, I, I signed up to help you, Pastor. I didn't sign up for somebody to tell me I'm doing this wrong. Well, this is what we do to God all the time, isn't it? I'll hear this as long as it backs up what I already believe. If it reinforces what I believe, this is good. If it grinds against me a little bit, I don't like that. And this is where we all have to come back to the place of truly believing that you are loved. Truly believing that you're not only loved, you are accepted. Truly believe that you are received. Look at the words he uses here. All right, so just for a minute, skip the scary words like scourge and discipline. All right, just skip those for fun. Look at these words. Whom the Lord loves. Whom the Lord receives. You are his children. He regards you as sons and daughters. Now look at these terms. These are the, these are the words God's using about you. I love you. I receive you. That's what God's saying about you. What you're hearing is up to you. What God's saying is constant. What you're hearing is entirely up to you, what you choose to believe about God. So God is speaking the language of love when he disciplines. That's not the only way he loves us, but it is a great way because I want to be a disciple trained up by God. If you look at this word in the original language, it's, it's got the word for child hidden right in it. It's training up a child, instructing a child, raising a child. You ever seen a kid that's obviously never been disciplined by his parents? Are those fun people to be around? No. And do you say, whoa, that kid must be really loved. Look at him. Look at him pull that red-haired kid's hair. Look at, look at them smash the lamp over there. Their parents must really love them so much. You don't say that. In fact, sometimes you feel compassionate. Of course, we can't judge I've learned now that we have a four-year-old, do not judge other parents. You don't know. <laughs> I won't judge you. You don't judge me, all right? If you've got some tips, that's great. We have a lovely son. He's, he's like the coolest human being I've ever met. But it doesn't matter how great they are. There are times where you go, oh, I hope nobody ever remembers this moment, you know? So... First of all, let's not judge other parents just by what the kids are doing. But there are some kids, they are so clearly without discipline, so clearly without somebody that's shown them the right way to go or told them no. You know, you always, you meet kids that have never been told no and they're shocked, just shocked that you would say they can't do that. I had some kids uh, last Sunday night take my phone. We tracked it to their house. Can I have that back, please? I didn't take it. It was this other kid. No, we tracked it to your house. Okay, here. Gave it back and just moved on with their life. Like that was, you know, well, it was worth a try. And thank God we got our phone back. But there was the attitude. These, these kids, I remember, these were kids and you wouldn't know them. But these three kids had come asking for food because they weren't getting fed at home. So the way they acted out, they took my phone. But the real reason, I mean, the, the real cause of all this was they weren't really being raised in a way that was loving. So they don't know what's right and what's wrong. They might have a sense of it, but it's not firmly ingrained in them. So if we apply that to earthly kids, shouldn't that we apply that to ourselves and say, if the Father loves me, he's going to train me, and, he, and I have to just be humble enough to realize that I'm not yet perfect. My spirit is made perfect in him, but I still think some of the way I, things I used to think I still do some of the things I used to do. And so the Father loves me enough not to let me just go down that path of destruction, but instead to train me to be like Him. I mean, this is what we're being trained for. Not just to not do bad, but to be like our Father. To look like Him. We've already got the DNA. We've already got the genetics to be just like Him. He dealt with that. When we were born again, we were given his DNA, his genetics, his, his, his nature, his character. We, all of that, everything you need to be like your father, he has given you. So now what's, what's it going to take is, is, is listening and, 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 and being in a relationship where he can say, don't do that, do this. This is how you be like me. This is how you're like me. This is how, this is the way you used to be, but now put on the new self, which is being renewed in the spirit of righteousness and holiness of the truth. I want to read you the verse that the writer is quoting here in Hebrews because it reads a bit different 
and it adds just another layer to it. It comes from Proverbs 3. And I want to start with verse 5, which we, we know this well. Actually, let's start right at, at verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For a length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now listen to that. He says, my teaching, my commandments will, will cause you to live longer, will give you a better life. He says, trust in the Lord, so you will find favor. Sorry, in verse 4. You will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. And I, I, would, I would believe that everybody here needs healing in your body and refreshment to your bones at some point. And that comes from embracing the words of our Father. And he says this. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as the father corrects the son in whom he delights. We have to retrain ourselves in how we react to God. How you react to God is one of the most important things we need to get straight in our lives. Because God is speaking. He's moving. He's speaking at all times to his children. The best thing you can do is learn and observe how you react when you hear the word of the Lord. How you react when you sense his leading. How do you react to God? Because his word is final. His word is constant. The question is, how do you react to it? Do you flinch? Do you run away? Do you faint? Do you just say, I want to quit? I thought this would be easier. I just thought, I didn't think it'd be like this. Or do you run closer to him? Do you draw near to him? We have to acknowledge that our reaction is so often based on our past experience and our idea of God. If you're not convinced this morning that he loves you, he embraces you, he has accepted you, you're his, and that's settled. If you don't believe that, when you're disciplined, when you're corrected, you see it as rejection, right? We've all seen that. I brought this up before, but we've all seen that dog that has obviously been hit, and you, you, you raise your voice a little bit, or you raise your hand, and the dog flinches and runs away. I met kids that came out of foster homes, and, and wonderful kids. They're, they're loving. They're, they're kind. And yet... The minute they feel that you think they're doing something wrong, what happens? They, they, they shrink into themselves. Maybe they cry. Maybe they get quiet. Maybe they get angry. Because to them, disapproval of their action is disapproval of them. Rejection of what they're doing or correction of what they're doing is rejection of them. Do you know, Jesus, God said to him right before, before his ministry ever yielded fruit, before he did anything uh, as, as the Messiah. I mean, he was, of course, perfect and without sin. But before his ministry began, before all the sick were healed, before he was setting free all those oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, for, before all of this, God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. It was the foundation that everything Jesus did was built on. I'm his son, and he is well pleased in me, well pleased with me. So then you see Jesus later on say, I do the, th because, you know, my father's with me, because I do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So because Jesus received the fact that I'm pleasing to God, then he did the things that were pleasing to God. Now, I'll just be honest with you. I believe I am pleasing to God. I don't believe everything I do is pleasing to God. 
I just know that. There are plenty of things I do that are not pleasing to God, and I want to change those things. For all of us, they may seem small or bigger. It just doesn't matter. Between us and Jesus, between us and the Father, there are some things that you go, I'm pretty sure God's not pleased with that. But the question is, when you sense that God is not pleased with that, do you believe he's still pleased with you? Because that's going to define what you, how you react to when he says, don't do that. Stop that. Do this. If I truly believe that I am loved by the Father, we sang that song, Good, Good Father. And maybe, maybe you hear that first verse and you're like, I don't feel comfortable seeing this, where it says, and you tell me that you're pleased. Well, how arrogant. Surely God sometimes tells you he's not pleased. I think, sure, there's, there's plenty of times God tells me, I'm not pleased with that. But if you keep hearing I'm not pleased with you, something's busted with your filter. Because our righteousness is not of ourselves, but of God. Not one of us has a shot at being pleasing to God without the blood of Jesus. Not one of us. We don't have a shot at it. And so either it's, 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 it's either all or nothing here, guys. Either it's by his blood that we're cleansed or it's not. If it's by his blood, I've got to accept I'm righteous, I'm justified, and so you find pleasure in me. I do unrighteous things from time to time. That doesn't magically become good to God, right? You don't say, I'm righteous, I'm going to beat this child up. Okay, you're cool with that, right? Because we're me and you. No, he's not cool with that. But are you rejected now? Does he, does he cast you out into the outer darkness and say, I'm done with you? If we believe that he loves us, that he delights in us, we'll receive correction and discipline with open arms. In fact, if we stop seeing discipline and reproof and correction as proof that God is mad and instead saw it as proof that he delights. I want you to hear that word delight. This is a trigger word for me. Delight. That's a big word for me. Because like I said, I have had no problem believing he loves me. Delight is different. There are people you will tell them you love them. You'll tell them on the phone, I love you. I love you. I love you. Uh, We'll see you at Thanksgiving, right? I love you, but I don't want to spend time with you. I love you. I just don't want to be in the room with you too long. But people you delight in, those are people you're looking for excuses to spend time with. You're trying to find reasons to be around them. It says we have this assurance in our hearts that he actually likes us, that he delights in us. And the proof of his delight is the fact that he didn't leave you in your own path, but said, come over here. This is the, this is the way. Walk in it. Now I want you to hear something. The scripture told us here in Hebrews that no discipline, let's just read it again because I want you to see it for yourself just so you don't think I'm lying. Because it goes down and it says this. Furthermore, this is Hebrews 12 verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Why does the Father discipline us? For our good that we may share in his holiness. Can we just straighten something out before we go any further? His discipline is not a penal punishment, not to do with penalty. Does that make sense to you guys? There's another, there's two other words in the Greek that speak of like a penalty that needs to be paid. The scales of justice are off. We need to make them right again. This idea that there has been evil done, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that something needs to be made right again. We have to understand that that penalty has been paid once and for all by Jesus Christ. So your discipline, discipline is, is different than punishment for the sake of punishment. It is, right? Mm-hmm. See, 1 John says, and we, we know this word, verse well, it says that perfect love casts out all fear because fear involves punishment. 
And he begins to talk to us about the fact that we have assurance on the day of judgment. We have confidence because as he is, so are we in this world. There's this idea that, that we don't have to fear punishment that we used to deserve. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life, right? So we justly deserved death, but that penalty was placed on Jesus. So you've got to separate penalty with discipline. We've got to separate them. If you can't separate them, it'll mess with your head every time. Maybe I deserve this. Maybe I should stay sick. I brought this on myself. My wife, Tia, will tell you that, that uh, we were in a, a church service in Texarkana. This is while we were, we were engaged. And we went to go visit um, some relatives down there. We, went, we ended up at uh, Pastor Tracy Harris's church. And he was, I mean, this is a guy who's been greatly gifted by God to minister in the area of healing. I mean, just see miracles of all sorts. I mean, of, of all sorts. And he began to talk to us about some people not, not ever receiving healing because they felt they brought it on themselves. Like, somehow this is my fault. I know uh, God heals all this other stuff, but I did this to me. Well, guys, if we were to play that game, you'd never get healed of anything. Right? right? You just, you'd, you'd find a reason. And I think the enemy, the adversary of our own souls is, is more than happy to give you a dozen reasons why you should be sick. That's the path you want to go down, stay sick. But, but I, don't, I don't think you need to live that way. And what set something free in Tia, Tia who had back issues for so long like if you added I remember when we were before we were married I said can you put my cell phone in your purse and she's like if you just add that that just throws the balance off and I thought she was joking but she was serious that's how bad her back was and in that service she was set free because I mean this is a girl who had been healed of she had been lactose intolerant. God healed her of that. She had had a skin thing that God healed instantly. God had healed her in so many areas. Her faith for healing was strong. But in this area, she said, I knew better than to lift that desk, and I did it anyways. Mm-hmm. So this is on me. I was told not to lift this by myself. I got excited. I lifted it so I could get the decorating done. And because I did that, I tweaked my back. I caused this problem. It's my fault. And that was a barrier for her to believe that God would heal her because this is my fault. But if you believe that the penalty, that our iniquity has been, uh, the, the iniquity of us all has been laid upon Jesus Christ, then you'll have no barrier between you and receiving what God has for you and receiving the healing that God has for you. Because as long as we're still thinking about punishment, as long as we're still thinking about the penalty, like I said, none of us would get healed. None of us would be saved. None of us would ever feel that God loves us because we'd all feel like we had the, the right and, and, and just deserve to die. So what does he do? He assures our heart. He puts in our spirit this confidence that we are now sons and daughters of God. And we cry out, Abba, Father. And we believe that we've been received. We believe that we've been cleansed. So the reason for his discipline is not to satisfy the cosmic scales of justice because those were satisfied the day Jesus died. That's been taken care of. The reason for discipline has nothing to do with the penalty of sin because if it did, we'd all be headed to execution. Right? I mean, let's just be honest. Can we just be straight? If it's because of sin that you're still dealing with this stuff then why did God let you off easy? I mean, the wages of sin is death, right? So why is God letting you off with like, I don't know, a headache? (laughs) Why is he letting you off with a broken leg? You think God did that because you deserved it? Well, uh, man, you got off easy because you should have died. Let's just be straight about it. Let's just be honest about it. Either Either it's punishment for my sin or it's not. It's not that Jesus took like, the bad part of the punishment. It's not like our sentence was reduced. It was taken away. So if I can fully believe this, then the next time I'm corrected, the next time the Lord disciplines me, I don't back away. Because I'm not not sensing rejection. 
I'm saying, this is proof he loves me. Yeah. If he didn't love me, he wouldn't correct me. Can I go past love and, and say what the scripture says? This is proof he delights in me. Amen. This is proof, I, I don't know, I know this is like contrary to the way we think, but when's the last time you were corrected and said, they must really like me? <laughs> they just really like me. He likes me. I was wondering when you were going to get on to me for something. I mean, even that phrase, get on to me, has all these negative implications. And then he says this. Let's go on. For they discipline us for a short time as seem best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. So the reason, God's reason for discipline, once again, is not justice. Justice has been carried out. His reason for discipline is purely, it's not to get something off his chest because he just needs to let it out. It's purely for your good so that you might share in his holiness. That's his only reason. This is not so that other people see you and go, ooh, I don't want to sin. It's not a deterrent. It is purely for your good to share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now hear this, because this is good for me to hear. Because there's a lot of times I don't feel good. I don't feel necessarily like, oh, that was the best thing I could have heard. When I find out I've been doing something the way I shouldn't have done it. I should have done it a different way. I made a mistake here. I did something. When it's corrected, it doesn't always feel good. In fact, he says, all discipline seems for the moment not to be good. At the time, it doesn't feel good. So if your only conversations you can ever have with God are feel-good conversations, that might be a problem. Because he says discipline does not often feel good at the moment. Mm -hmm. But when you're trained by it, mm -hmm. you recognize it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Notice it doesn't just say righteousness. It yields peaceful fruit of righteousness. Peaceful, the idea of things broken being made whole again. Peaceful, the idea of things that were wrong being made right. Peaceful, the idea that there's not the anxiety and the stress and the worry that God doesn't love me or he's unhappy with me. This peaceful means there is a sense of complete, I am good, we're good. There is peace, I'm settled, I'm whole, I'm fixed. Yeah. Don't you believe that? Righteousness without peace is not righteousness at all. And so here's the deal. When you're trained by his discipline, once again, it's not proof of rejection. It's not proof of his anger. It's proof of his love, of his delight. And then it says this, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by, many, by it many are defiled. just want to see that again because, remember he's saying, it's for discipline that you endure. God wants you to endure. I mean, this is really, think about it. You think about those people that train for marathons. Anybody here ever run a marathon? Yeah? Ooh, I hear yeah, but I don't see any hands. You ran a marathon, Audrey? That's really cool. I did not know that. And, uh, I've heard some other yeahs. I didn't see hands because everybody's very humble. It's not going to tell us about how they ran a marathon. <laughs> no, uh, that's cool. I have never even come close to running a marathon. Never, never even came close. <laughs> <laughs> Come to think of it. All right, new project to you. Uh, by 2020. You ever see somebody train for a marathon just eating donuts and sitting on beanbag chairs? Do they train for a marathon just by watching other people run marathons? No. I have seen people train for marathons who look miserable at the moment. Then they like it, though. They like it. You ever met people that like to run? 
weirdest people. They're just, you know, they talk about the runner's high. It's a rumor I've heard about. I don't know this. So you get that runner's high. Oh, you love it. They, they buy the clothes. They hang out with other runners. They drink special smoothies. These people are cool, but I, I don't know their language yet. Like, I've yet to infiltrate their tribe. But these guys, they like it, but they'll push themselves. Like Paul said, I'm buffeting my body. I'm making my slaves so that I won't fall short of the crown. I won't be disqualified. So there's this idea of at the moment, and some of you guys know this, when you're working out, it doesn't always feel good. In fact, you often push to the point where it's uncomfortable. Push past your comfort, right? Because as soon as I can get past my comfort, I can step into the area where good is actually being done. You don't lose weight comfortably, right? Now he's saying this is how you're going to endure. How are you going to keep from passing out on mile two? How are you going to keep from from giving up when it got a little hard? Well, you trained for this. Because your father loved you enough to say, this, I want you to run. So this is what you're going to do. And at the moment, you're like, I'd, I'd feel better not doing that. I'd, I'd, I'd rather do this. But he said, no, I love you. You want to share in my holiness. I'm going to show you what this looks like. And it yields a fruit, a peaceful fruit of righteousness. So you see those Forrest Gump types that just love to run. They genuinely like it. Eric Little When I run, I feel his pleasure. These people that just genuinely love to run because they brought their body past the point of comfort to a point where they were trained for it and they could endure. And their lungs didn't quit on them. Their heart didn't quit on them. Their body didn't say, this is too much. They kept going because they had said, I've been trained for this moment. The people that are being written to in this letter are facing some things they didn't expect to face. And he's saying, don't you know that God loves you, that he's your father, and he loves you enough to train you for this moment, to discipline you, so that you don't walk down the path you used to walk that led to destruction, but instead you walk down the path that leads to life. Because he wants good fruit out of your life. So what do we do? What's our part? How do we react to God? Watch your reactions to God. Pay attention to the times you flinch. Pay attention to how you react. Listen, I've learned this. I can tell you till the cows come home that I react well to God. But if I don't react well to people, I'm probably fooling myself. Because if you react terribly to people, I mean, if if a person correcting you, now I realize not everybody's in a position to correct you at every time, but if a person corrects you never goes well, I would probably guess that God correcting you doesn't go so well either. It might be just you just hear what you want to hear. People are one of the greatest ways that we can find out our relationship with God. Because if my relationship with God is solid, it'll change the way I react to people. I'll love them when I I love people I don't normally love. I'll, I'll, I'll be way more patient. I notice when my relationship with God. When I get so busy, I haven't spent time with the Lord. I'm impatient sometimes. I just, I just, I don't want to be around everybody. These things happen. But when I get more time with the Lord, you genuinely act different around people. So watch your reaction to God. Watch your reaction to people and observe, how am I responding to God? This is what the prophet said in the Old Testament. He said, I will set myself up on the high place, on the watch place. I'll set myself up like a watchman. He said, I will wait to hear what the Lord says and how I will respond when I am reproved. How will I respond when I am reproved? You can control your response to God. You can change how you see it. And that response has to come from the place. If you've heard nothing else, please hear this. Your father loves you. Your father has accepted you. He likes you. He loves you. He's embraced you. And the next time you're corrected, the next time he says something to you, it doesn't immediately sound like something you'd want him to say. Remember this. That's proof he likes me. It's proof that he loves me. And instead of fainting when you're reproved, this is what he's saying. Don't faint when you're reproved. Don't stop. Don't quit. Don't, don't turn away. Don't back off.
but draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. What a great promise. So our part after that is to look around, strengthen the hands that hang down. Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. This causes me to look around and say, who can I strengthen? Who can I encourage? Who's getting ready to faint? And how can I bear them up? Because I think there's people around us that still are overcoming the hurdle of believing that they're loved by God. Mm -hmm. And the best way they're going to get over that hurdle is to see the love of God through somebody else. Mm -hmm. So put your hand around them, put your arm around them and say, God loves you and I do too. Well, but you, you know, I did this and, and, and then this. Well, fix it. Let's turn around. But you got to understand, that didn't change God's love for you. So as long as I think my relationship depends, my relationship is only as good as my next move. The moment I mess up, the relationship is broken. Anytime I see a slight hint of disapproval in my actions, I think it's disapproval of me. But if I'm assured in our relationship, if our relationship is strong, if it's secure, if I know I love you and I know you love me, then a corrective word is not, is not rejection. It's love. It's love. I want us to be the kind of people that can take nations. I want us to be the kind of people that the enemy throws his arsenal at and we're still standing at the end of it. God wants to train you to be that way. God wants you to train you to be the kind of person he created you to be. He wants to show you, how, I mean, the, the, the depth, the width, the breadth, the height of his love and all that he's created you for. Let's embrace his correction. Let's embrace the discipline. And even when it doesn't feel nice, let's say, I know he loves me. Get it settled in your heart and don't back away. Please don't back away. Don't back away from each other. The first time there's a disagreement. Don't back away from, from the first time somebody corrects something. Don't back away from God the first time you feel like you might have done something that was out of order. Instead, draw near. Draw near. Draw near because his love for you is endless. It's relentless. It's, it's, it's inexhaustible. You can't, you can't wear him out. He's just that good. Amen? Stand up with me.